0: as the believer, sanctifies us, intercedes, comforts, teaches, and more. But my question is, why is the Holy Spirit important in biblical counseling? If anybody has wants to take a stab at that one, why is the Holy Spirit important in biblical counseling? All right, long. Okay, great, yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. The Holy Spirit convinces us or convicts us of sin or of righteousness, and the reason that's important, because in biblical counseling, that's why we use the Bible. We're not going to use man's uh, theories, uh, man's uh, assumptions of what, how we get better or whatever, but we're pointing people to Christ and his word. And so, with the goal in mind that it's not your job as the biblical counselor to convict them, it's the Holy Spirit's job, because as you're pointing them to the counselee, that is, to God's word, then they should be convicted by it. Or if they're going to be, it's going to be the Spirit's job. Okay, uh, the the next thing we talked about was What is biblical counseling and what is not biblical counseling? And biblical counseling is about strengthening your faith or relationship with God. It employs all the God-given graces and elements of change. It's caring and compassionate. It sees God's word as sufficient to deal with the matters of the heart and soul, eternal life, and godliness. It deals with the gospel of Jesus Christ and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's encouragement, so it's not all about dealing with sins, but it is encouragement as well, and for people that are suffering, going through trials, and it gives biblical direction for problems and sin issues. And then what biblical counseling is not, it's not simplistic, it's not dispensing Bible verses, it's not behavior modification. So when we look at and we talk about behavior modification, what would be different about biblical counseling, or why wouldn't we be so much after behavior modification? I know I don't know if we really talked it. Go ahead. Okay. And specifically, it's the heart right so if somebody like when I got saved you know there was many times like I tried to quit doing things swearing or whatever it was but when I got saved there was a change that happened in my heart and my desire changed from myself to wanting to please God and with that change in my heart, then my desire was to do what exactly pleased God, which was not swearing or not doing the other things I was doing. So when a person's heart is changed, because you can have somebody change their behavior, but they still they may shift it to doing the same thing with something else. You know, like for example, I went through treatment for alcoholism and drugs and I changed my behavior. Changed. I quit drinking. But, as well as did a lot of the other people that went through there with me. But then it just went from that sin to another sin. There was no heart change. It was just another, uh, another addiction. That it just whatever it was. So that's why we're we're not really interested in behavior modification, but a true change of the heart. Uh, biblical counseling is not ignoring or discounting medical or scientific data that is proven, uh, does not ignore true and proven medical issues, and does not seek to remedy them with Scripture. So if something is a true uh, medical issue, we're not going to try to tell them, well, you need to be delivered or anything like that. We're going to let the doctors take care of them. Uh, scripture... or Biblical counseling is not counseling that has a pristine outlook on science and research, and that would be more on the observation side. Uh, And then counseling is not angry, lacking, compassion, or legalistic, and finally, it's not an autonomous ministry. And when we say that, we mean biblical counseling, if it's done right, is part of the church. And so... Uh, with the elders and the pastor and elders over the ministry, and as you 're counseling people, if something comes to a sin issue that 's not being corrected, then the elders get involved with discipline so it's biblical counseling is not an autonomous ministry and then I guess this is going to be our theme verse for the course. Uh, Romans fifteen fourteen and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you are, yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and also able, able also to admonish one another. Some of us learn things in the King James, you know, and uh, so when you start uh, reading other versions, you get messed up, um, but it's the same word. Uh, The other thing, so Stuart Scott, his definition, biblical counseling is ministering the word of God to believers with humility, compassion, and accountability to bring about abiding hope, change, and usefulness for the glory of God. And then I had this chart here, and hopefully you guys can see it well. So when you look at biblical counseling, and this is really a good way to look at it, because as we look at that verse Romans in Romans where it talks about we're able to basically counsel, admonish one another, rebuke one another. The question really becomes, well, does that mean I counsel any situation? And I would say the answer is no. Uh, You have to be qualified, I guess, in a sense. But when you look at, like, what would you say to somebody that came up to you and asked, Should I give to the church? First of all, we'll say, is that a a biblical counseling issue? It is. You know, when you look at, because when you look at biblical counseling, it's about discipleship. All right? That's really when, in essence, what biblical counseling is all about. It's about discipling. But for somebody that's involved in formal biblical counseling, It's more of an intense discipleship. And some of the people that we've been doing counseling with, we're giving them homework. They're going home and, and every week studying parts of Scripture to understand how that applies to them and their situation. So it's really, so I'll ask that question again, looking at biblical counseling as discipleship. If somebody came up to you and asked, should I give to the church, is that, the advice you've given them, is that biblical counseling? Or, let me rephrase it, is it counseling? All right? Because remember we talked about counseling is, and people do it all the time, all right, whether it's biblical or not, because what makes it biblical counseling is when you point them to God's word, all right? But if somebody comes up to you and asks you a question that they want advice on, They're coming to you because they believe you would have an answer for them, all right? And if you give them an answer, you have just counseled them, all right? So when you think about that, that makes you really think, what am I saying to people? You know, am I pointing them to God? Am I pointing them to my own philosophy? So when we look at this chart here, we see that And so, I guess I can watch it on the screen. Here, right in front of me, so I don't have to look behind me. That would be less formal. And so, you see, all believers on this level. Yeah, I I would say that if somebody came and asked you, Should I give to the church? You could turn them to, like, Proverbs chapter 3, how it talks about giving. And, you know, we could turn there and we could say, You know, Proverbs chapter 3. I could even maybe have one of you guys, but I'll turn there. Proverbs 3 says that, and I'm just trying to remember the exact verse. I should have had it ahead of time. Um, Honor the Lord, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. You could also turn them uh, to the Gospels where Jesus says, given it'll be given unto you, press down and to the point where your cup is running over. And so, yeah, you could do that, right? I mean, it's really about discipleship. And so, yeah, it's less formal. Somebody might come up to you in the lobby and ask you a question, a question you could probably answer if you've been a Christian for any time. And it's going to be less intense, you know you, they come up and ask you if they should give uh, money to the church and you say well let's look at proverbs they're not going to you know throw a fit and and uh start throwing around things and breaking th-. you know what i mean it's it's less intense it's you're just giving them some advice that they're looking for but pointing them to god's word makes it biblical counseling all right but then as you get into the more intense intensive things let's say somebody comes to you and say I'm having a problem with pornography, all right? Well, yeah, you can pray for them. You can probably turn them to scripture, but maybe it's something they're going to need more accountability on. And so you want somebody that's going to be more able to, I mean, and maybe you feel up to that, you know, being accountable. That's something you could probably do. Marriage, you know, somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, me and my wife are having problems. Well, now we're starting to get into Something a little more where maybe the pastor or a, a trained, somebody trained in biblical counseling is going to be maybe do a better job. Now, you know, it, the thing is, everybody can counsel. It's just at what level. And so the less intense, less formal is going to be down here. It's going to be done by all believers. The more uh, the more formal and the more uh, complicated the problem is, it's gonna you know roll up to the elder and pastors. Okay. So we talked about that. So that's for a review. Today we'll start talking about something new. And when I use the word epistemology, I had to learn all these fancy words in school, and believe me, my mind is, you know. When you're younger, maybe your mind is uh, is better at retaining. Uh, when you get older, not so much. Uh, but I will ask you guys: What is epistemology? By the way, long. Oh yeah, yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. It's it's basically the actual definition: the study or theory of the nature and grounds of knowledge, especially with reference to its limits and validity but really it's about how do you arrive at what you believe, all right? So, and the reason why we bring this up is there's four main ways to know truth. I mean, there's probably more, but there's four main ways. And the first is, and these are in descending order, so obviously the most important is on top, which is revelation from God. That is the best source of knowledge. That's the best place to get your truth. And that comes, revelation from God comes in two ways. In general revelation, and if somebody would read Psalm 19, 1 through 6, and then somebody can read Romans 1, 18 through 20. So who has Psalm 19, I should say who wants to read it. I know if you guys have a Bible, you all have it. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, and then Romans 118 through 20 who has that one? Okay, go ahead Lucas. so go ahead, Ben. Thanks for reading that. And then Lucas, go ahead with Romans 118 through 20. So when we look out at the world around us, the sun, the moon, the mountains, the lakes, the desert, all that stuff, according to Romans, what it's telling us is that what can be known about God, His even his invig- invisible attributes, and his godliness, his divineness, can be known from those, from what we see. And so to the point where people are without excuse. In other words, it, it doesn't matter that, you know, it's not going to be an excuse to say, well, I never heard the gospel. Because right there, seeing what's before them tells them there is a God, there is a creator. And, you know, we can see from the fact that there's death in the world, that judgment does come. So, divine general—that's uh, general, general revelation—and then special or divine revelation is God's word, and that's where we get our source of truth, and it's our best source of truth. In, in fact, all of our other truth that we come that we come up with should emanate or should be compared against God's word, and if there's a difference, we go with God's word. All right. Now, you might say, well, uh, and I'm trying to think of, there was a a plague that happened. It wasn't called a plague, but it was, uh, I'm trying to remember the disease, but it it was in China, and it was around the 50s, uh, but it was in the uh, mid-1900s. And Christians were saying it's because of sin that all these people are dying. And when they found out that, uh, no, it's really, it was just a way, it was clearly something that was not being taken care of properly physically, well, Christians look bad, but does that mean the Bible was wrong? No, it just means that sometimes, you know, we look at things in a wrong way. And so sometimes we need to stand corrected, but it doesn't mean God's word was wrong. It means our interpretation of it was wrong. So, but the next uh, level would be empiricism, which is hard science. And when we talk about hard science, because the next one is soft science, which is reason and observations, what what are the difference between those two? Okay, Obser- by experiment. Okay. And what about soft science then? which would be reason and observations. Well, a couple, couple thoughts on that are, one is, you look at the Grand Canyon, all right? Now, that is something you can observe. I can observe it, an atheist can observe it. But we might come up with two different scenarios of how it got there, because... You know, we know that it happened from the flood, all right? And so, how about if we do an experiment, let's flood the earth again, ain't gonna happen, all right? For two reasons. One is why? Because God said it wasn't. He put the rainbow in the sky. As a covenant or a promise that he wouldn't flood the earth again. So, even if we tried, God would, "Eh, ain't gonna happen, guys. Uh, It would just be impossible, all right, to perform an experiment like that. But there are things. So what do you say to somebody that has, you know, we'll take it down to the level of what we're talking about, counseling people, all right? So you have somebody with, I'll say, a quote-unquote mental illness. How did that happen? You know, and that, so, I mean, that's what we have to consider is how, How do these, I mean, science, I don't even think has a full answer to most things like that. So it's a matter, but we can all observe it. And we can say that, well, you know, if I poke this guy in the eye, he gets mad. And if I poke this guy in the eye, he gets mad, all right? Uh, Well, if I poke this guy in the eye, he might cry, but, you know, two thirds of the time they're going to get mad all right that's observation, all right? Okay, where did I go to school right the uh, The idea is that this is how a lot of uh psychological data is collected is from observation like that, not you know not poking people in the eyes but uh, but from you know scenarios that were Things happen, and you're trying to understand why. You know, like, okay, this guy's an alcoholic. Is it genetic? Is it, um, is it a family thing where, you know, like an environmental type thing, which would be slightly different than genetic? Uh, or, you know, what is it? And so that's what science tries to look at. They collect data. and uh, But that would be more of a soft science, where you're... Making conclusions based on observation, and then the last one is intuition, which is uh, your feeling and senses. And that's, you know, I got feeling. I don't know if that's really a great way to go about things because you might be right and you might be wrong. But why would this be important? Why is why is understanding this type of grid of um, Epistemology, why is that important when we're looking at counseling, that is? Well, because, and and I'll show you this slide, and so here we have a comparison of counseling models, and this is more of a historical, and then there's another one which is uh, more present-day models. Let's see if I can go back here. Let's see. Okay, and this is where it becomes important because one where you, base, what you base your truth on really forms your worldview. And in in the case of counseling, it's how we're going to counsel somebody, how we're going to determine how to counsel somebody. And so there's there's a lot of different views up here we're not gonna go through them all, but we'll look at some of the main ones, all right? When we look at historical models, what, what do you think is one of the common ones? Psychology. Yeah, yeah, psychology. Um, Freud. Freud, yep, and they call it depth psychology. But Freud was one of the founding guys in psychology, all right? And when we look at his view of man, Man is an instinctual animal. In other words, what drives him is the instincts that exist within him. And which he called the id, the superego, and the ego. And so, the responsibility for his problem was not his. Rather, we find that in his teaching that it's the result of Well, let's face it, bad parenting or your environment. But how it worked out was there was a conflict between the id and the superego, and what that did was it created false guilt and inner inner turmoil. Now, when I talk about false guilt, let's say that you, you know, like an example, because there's two ways to look at guilt in a false way, uh, that psychi- psycholo- psychology looks at it, psychiatry, psychology. Um, and one would be, it's when you go against your standards. So then it, where did you get the standards from? And in the case of, let's say that you have a, having a, a casual sexual relationship with somebody. You're not married. It just happens. It happens all the time these days. But let's say that you have grown up with the fact that that's wrong to do. And you the guilt weighs on you. You get depressed. This is a reality. People get depressed because they have guilt. Um, and you go to the psychologist and they tell you, well, obviously your parents or your church gave you these standards and they're... You know, they impose this on you. And so what you're, the guilt you're feeling is a false guilt. You need to discount it, all right? Bad move, all right? Uh, now, false guilt also can come in the uh, form where uh, J. Adams uh, writes about false guilt. Uh, he says, and this is incompetent to counsel, guilt feelings are thought of as false guilt by Freudians. That is guilt over the id superego conflict. In other words, these are the id and the ego, the superego, a lot of these to Freudians are subconscious, meaning you're not even aware of it that this is happening within you, all right? But these conflicts cause what Freud called the neurosis or what we would call today mental illness. But he says that uh, he—that's what they call it—rather than the violation of one's standards. A typical query at this point: How could Sue be guilty for wearing lipstick? All right. Now, so this is—he was a little older, so you might think this is foolishness. All right, but this is not foolishness. All right, uh, she could—meaning she could be guilty of wearing lipstick. If Sue had come from a home where she had been taught that wearing lipstick was a sin, now if when she goes to college she begins to wear lipstick in order to not look peculiar, but is doing so against her standards, she will be guilty of sin, and her guilt will be real. Even if wearing lipstick is not sinful in itself, Sue's act is sinful because it did not proceed from faith, Romans fourteen. 21 through 23. And so what you have to understand is that I mean that's a tricky situation because is wearing lipstick a sin? Is wearing cards a sin? Or I mean wearing cards. Playing cards is that a sin? No. Is watching certain movies a sin? That's I mean when you think about it and that's a good one for today. What about watching certain movies? You know, we've talked to Christians You've absolutely, it's a sin to watch an R-rated movie, all right? Now, I'm not suggesting you should, but what I am saying is there's a lot of things that we do in this world as Christians that are, you know, they're they're not called sin in the Bible directly, but some people do label them as sins and some don't. But if you believe something is a sin and you do it, you've gone against your conscience and it is sinful in that respect. So then it's a matter of how do you handle something like that? Well, you certainly don't discount somebody's guilt. All right, You need to deal with the guilt, true or false. It might be a way of saying, all right, let's, let's look at what's your biblical theology for calling this a sin. All right, And then if you determine that, then you need to repent. Or maybe you might want to start out with confessing your sin, and then let's look at, let's maybe shore up your uh, theology a little bit so that you don't, so your conscience is thinking right, All right, thinking biblically. Okay, well, I, I went into a lot on that, but it's important to understand when we're talking about false guilt because psychologists today, many, will tell you that even whether it's a, a godly standard or not, that guilt is something that's been imposed on you, either by your parents or by uh, your church. And it's you should discount it. Bad idea, all right? Well, so the solution in Freud's scheme is to actualize the potential... Make the unconscious conscious, strengthen the ego. And the goal is to allow the id to lead with full expression. In other words, if you're an extinctual animal, then you should be able to do what you want to do. All right? And, oh, yeah, Steve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be a very good way of looking at it. Yeah, and that's so and that's what happens is they'll, you know, well you just need exposure therapy. You need to keep continuing to do it so that you don't feel guilty anymore. And yeah, in essence you do sear your conscience, all right? Well, let's look at the next one, behaviorism. And again, when we look at these Not every person that does, that practices psychology or is a counselor psychologist would maybe believe these things to the nth degree, but this is what it was taught or is being taught currently. This, at the foundational level, is what uh, this school of thought teaches. All right, so in behaviorism, we have, well, B.F. Skinner, you may be aware of that name, Here, mankind comes into this world as a blank slate. In other words, nothing's wrong with them, but it's what is inscripted upon them that matters. And so uh, the problem becomes their environment or their brain is, either their environment taints taints them in a wrong way or their brain misfires in a wrong way and so they have maladaptations, which is a way of saying uh, their brain is messed up. And so it's an environmental issue, and so you need to restructure the environment. And again, you wouldn't look at it as man... The problem isn't man's. It's actually not an issue at all, because to the behavioralist, uh, the true behavioralist, it's evil doesn't exist. And so... There's really not an issue with that. It's just basically reprogramming somebody to think rightly. All right? And so restructure their environment, uh, better functioning. All right, the next one we're going to look at is Carl Rogers. And uh, here it's called Third Force. I'm not sure where that came from, but uh, Carl Rogers, we talked about him earlier in a few sessions ago. But, if you're familiar with the movie about what about Bob, all right, so Richard Dreyfus, yeah, <laughs> some of you guys are really uh Richard Dreyfus was a Rogerian counselor, in other words, you don't tell them what they're doing wrong, you just listen and listen and listen, and you mirror back what they're saying yeah. what's that yeah, you're reflecting back exactly, so you're not you're not really guiding them all right. And mankind is good by nature and full of potential, but again, they're people, the people in their life, probably parents and churches, because really, when you think about it, who else is in really involved in a kid's life? Maybe the teachers' at school, but uh, but basically, this is where they're getting all this bad stuff is from their parents. And so the solution is to offer unconditional positive regard and to validate their feelings, and the goal is maturity through self-acceptance and validation, which eventually, you know, when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's again to uh, get to that full potential, you know, everything that, be everything that you can be. Okay, and then now we'll look at, uh, and I'm not even sure if this one's on here or not, but it's, it's, cognitive behavior therapy, which is is really interesting when you look at cognitive behavior therapy, because if there was any model that was close to what biblical counseling should be, it would be this, because what you're doing is you're looking at people's thoughts and you're challenging their thoughts to think rightly, all right? And that's really what biblical counseling is about, but the difference is we're using the Bible. All right? So uh, with cognitive behavior therapy, uh, it's the, the problem with people is a product of their cognition and thinking. In other words, they're, uh, they have maladapt- maladaptive, which means they're messed up in their thinking. All right? From their or their exactly. Well, this is, I mean, that's almost a given at this point. Um, The treatment is to charge erroneous uh, patterns to more adaptive patterns. So again, you're trying to teach them to think right, but when you think about it then, based on whose standards, all right? And if you're going to somebody that is doing cognitive behavior therapy and they're an atheist, are they going to tell you about God? Are you going to say, you know, they're not going to lead you to God's word. And so that's really the problem with it is that there's no God, there's no reason to change, and furthermore, it really isn't about the standards of God's Word. It's really about, well, what's going to make you feel better? What are you really after in this situation? And when you look at it, psychological counseling is about that. It's about how can we make you happy? In other words, what is gonna either make you feel good or function better in society, all right? I mean, those are good things. Yeah, we wanna be happy. Uh, I wanna be able to function every day. I I mean, because when I function better, I do better at work, I get raises, all that kind of good stuff. But the problem is, if the only goal is to be happy and function right in the society, what about eternity? And what about pleasing God and honoring God and glorifying God? All right. Now, this one I know is not up here. It's, it's uh, called Present-Day Models uh, Biogenic Theory. And so when we look at this, it's, uh, it's really the popular psychology of today, that the problem with mankind is, or what makes up mankind is their brain chemistry, all right? Yeah, their body is part of it, but the brain chemistry is really why you are the way you are. And so if you have anxiety, if you have depression, if you have bipolar, you know, you name it, it's a product of the chemicals in your brain, the uh, the uh, serotonin levels, the... Uh, Dopamine levels, the how your synapses are firing with each, with each other, and so the problem is there's an imbalance of brain chemicals, and the treatment is to give medication so the person feels better, and again the goal is a better feeling and better function, and and then lastly we'll come to biblical counseling, which is the Authority, obviously, God in his word. Mankind is created to, by God to glorify him. That's over here, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> the problem is man is a fallen sinner, suffering because of sin, whether their own or others. The treatment is justi- justification by faith and progressive sanctification. And the goal is to deal with sin and their response to God's word. All right. Well, those—that's why how we look at truth becomes important—is because it really guides our model of counseling. And uh, then, as we look at, well, what about the Bible? Because a lot of people do teach, even in churches, Christian churches, teach that. Well, yeah. God's Word is good, but it's not sufficient. And there's a lot of Christian psychologists, by the way, that, that teach that exact same thing. That it's not, the Bible is not sufficient. It's good, but we have methods and uh, psychological methods. But remember... Okay. Um, there is no personal responsibility. It's either the brain is, you know, inspiring or your parents or your church or your early childhood years mess you up. Yep. And that's the problem. It's, there is no personal responsibility. Yeah, exactly. And we're accountable to them, yep, exactly, and that's why, yeah, you can have a you can feel better, you can function better, but if it doesn't help you on the judgment day, what good is it all right um, what what I want to do now is I want to talk about the sufficiency of scripture, and we have about maybe ten minutes to do this, so hopefully we'll get through it, but if somebody would read second Timothy three. Verses 1 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 17. Thanks for uh, reading that, Josiah. Uh, the context, the greater context of uh, this would be the book of 2 Timothy is the apostle is writing to Timothy, who was a pastor and an evangelist. And so Paul is writing to him as, to some degree, a father, to some degree, his boss, I guess you'd say, uh, as Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but... Um, but he's encouraging them, he's instructing them. And in the more immediate context, we see in verse 1, we see Paul warning Timothy of troubling times that will come, where people will resist and oppose truth, verse 8, and deception and heretic, heretical teachings will increase, in verse 13. And the first two, and in, in looking at verse 2, that by the way, uh, that men will be, or people in this version, people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. And one commentator wrote, the first two, lovers of themselves, philatio, and lovers of money, philagrio, if I said those right, supply the key to the rest of the list. Moral corruption follows from love falsely directed. So I'll say that again. Moral corruption follows from love falsely directed. Self-centeredness and material advantages, when they become the chief objects of affection, destroy all moral values. And the subsequent list of vices is their natural fruit. And so what he's saying there is that uh, though to be a lover of yourself and a lover of money produces all that fruit that he talks about. And the same commentator describes this time as a time of militant error. And it's, I would say, not too far from where we're at today. But it is against this backdrop that Timothy is exhorted to remain steadfast in the word of God, which is able to save an individual from both present and eternal destruction, as well as qualified to equip the believer in Jesus Christ for every good work. And so the first thing I want to say about it is that the first two questions are, what does inspired or God-breathed mean? And the second is, what is meant by Scripture? So I'm looking at uh, verse, I believe, 16 there. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And uh, Josiah, the version you read, inspired by God. And some versions do say inspired by God. But breathed out is the same uh, translated from the same word, and that word "inspired" comes from the Greek word theo which means God breathed out the words. And while in the passage, or okay, so that was the first one, is that God has breathed out these words. In other words, they came from God Himself. The yes, I uh, I think Second Peter tells us that. It was men that wrote the word of God, but is, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, like so many things, God uses men. God uses men for preaching. God uses men for teaching. And yet, it's God that is, yeah, we might get it wrong, but the ones that he inspired to write his word, he, God gave them the words And through their personality, through their, you know, whatever you want to call it, their writing style, God was, he gave us his word through these men. Uh, It says that uh, holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit to pen these words. And so uh, that's 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. The idea, though, is that, The words that we have are from God. And so we shouldn't shrink back, we shouldn't be ashamed, or anything like that, because what we have is God's word. Now, a lot of people would take issue with that, but when you look at it, if God was able to create the world like he did, how would he not be able to put his word into a book for us to read That were his exact words. I mean, certainly he's not up in heaven saying, "Oh, that's not what I really meant by that." Darn that Paul! How did he get that wrong? You know, or you know the. But the issue is, God, who is sovereign over all things, was able to give us His Word. All right. But the second part is when it says all Scripture is breathed. What does Scripture mean? Because The penning of this, really the scripture that existed, was the Old Testament. Um, So I got some quotes here from Wayne Grudem. uh, And while in the passage, scripture is referring to the writings in the Old Testament, two verses in the New Testament, namely 2 Peter 3.16 and 1 Timothy 5.18, point to the fact that the New Testament writers of the apostles, are inspired by God as well. I don't think we have time to look at them, but you can write those down. 2 Peter 3.16, 1 Timothy 5.18. In 2 Peter 3.15-16, the apostle Peter is equating the apostle Paul's letters with other scriptures. The 1 Timothy 5.18 passage shows the apostle Paul referencing Deuteronomy 25.4, for the first part and Jesus' words in Luke 10.7 as the second part, equating it all as Scripture. And so that is a quote from Wade and Grudem. Uh, the, but that's, so we see that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the sacred writings. They're the Scripture that God has breathed out. And it's something that, and I'm I'll have to say we're, uh, well, this clock is off a little bit. Maybe we can go a little further. The idea is that we do have God's word. And really, it's a matter of faith. You know, when, because, yeah, the the general overall teaching in the secular world these, these days is certainly that the Bible is not God's, truly God's word. It was written by men, of all things. And uh, it's, Of errors, but I mean, in reality, the Bible is not has no errors. Maybe some paradoxical differences that can be explained, but no errors. All right. Um, If you want to read a good book on that, uh, there is a book called "Surprised by Faith," and uh, I'm not—I can't remember the author right off the top of my head, but he does a scientific study of going back and looking at manuscripts uh, from the Bible as well as from other works of antiquity, um, the Wars of Caesar. Uh, there were some uh, works, uh, i trying to think of some of the other ones. Homer's Iliad was another one. Uh, but where he compares how the text looks at, like where the text, like where they were first discovered compared to when they were written, Uh, and also the differences between manuscripts. So like with Homer's Iliad, you might have had like uh, a part of a manuscript that was found 400 years after it was originally written. And then, you know, you might have so many copies. And then he compares them to see differences. But then he does the same with uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament writings and finds out uh, scientifically that there's, statistically, less errors in the biblical. There's more manuscripts. They're dated closer to the date when they were originally written. And as well, there's, like, for example, with the New Testament, there's like 19,000 manuscripts uh, or pieces of manuscripts. And the differences between the manuscripts are almost insignificant. There are some differences, but, like, how do you use the article the, you know, stuff like that. Um, But the idea is that we have, as Peter says, a more sure word of prophecy. And what we have is God's own words, regardless of what other people say. What it boils down to is a matter of faith. Are you going to believe God that not only that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to save us from our sin, but are you going to believe that his words are his words. I noticed in Psalm 119 tonight, we read uh, that every word of God is true. I, I, that was the New King James, so I'm not sure you were reading from the New, uh, New American Standard, I believe. And so it was a the word, what's that? The sum, of word the sum of every word is true. And when you think about that, there's a lot of verses that back that up. And really it is a matter of faith that are you going to believe what man tells you or are you going to believe that this book that you have called the Holy Bible is indeed God's word to you. And that's what I believe, so that's what I'm teaching you. So like it or not, that's what you're getting. Um, And I I know you guys like that So it's uh, because you guys believe in his word, and I appreciate that. All right, well, I'm going to stop there. Uh, the next time we're going to finish it up, but I think just to do it justice, I want to uh, hold off on you know going through uh, the rest of that uh, verse seventeen, basically uh, that or verse sixteen and seventeen that they're breathed out by God, but it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But we'll close. Right there, and uh, good idea. Any questions? We did cover a lot of material. Yeah, we're we're shooting the fire hose at you tonight. Sorry about that. Any questions? Mark, do you have any questions? I know you got that look on your face. <laughs> I gotta go. Okay. There's a couple of hands. Yep. Well, good. Well, uh, feel free to ask any questions afterward. And uh, but thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to close in order of prayer. But I think we're going to prayer. Okay. So two groups. Okay. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word uh, that you've given us and. Father, I just thank you for the words that are in it, and especially what we talked about tonight—that uh, that the words that you've given have been breathed out by you, that you've given them to us, uh, that we can be equipped for every good work. And so I thank you for that, and I thank you for this uh, this time, and pray that you would use it in these people's lives to uh, equip them and encourage them for. Uh, service in the church. And so we thank you for this time. Uh, We ask for your blessing on the rest of the night and that you would go with people as they go home. And we thank you for all of it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.